period as prominent characters. The, the first one is the one who we typically call the Antichrist. Um, the term Antichrist means against Christ or instead of Christ. And that's a term that actually is only used by John over in 1 John. But this guy's called a lot of other things. He's referred to in, in Daniel chapter 7 as this world ruler who will come out of the revived Roman Empire and sort of take over and rule during this time of tribulation, including a time when he'll go in and defile the Jewish temple. But he is the first character in chapter 13. The second character is someone also called a beast, but we generally call him the false prophet because whereas the first beast or the Antichrist or the little horn is the political leader of a one world government, the second guy is his sidekick who is a religious leader and they marry religion with politics and he as the false prophet is the number one cheerleader to the first guy. Working in all of that is the one called the dragon that we talked about last week, which is Satan himself. So trying to imitate God, and since God is a triunity, Satan has his own unholy trinity during the tribulation period of Satan himself and the beast or the Antichrist and the other beast or the false prophet. And so we see two of these guys here, and it gives us an image, a picture of the kind of leadership that you don't want. Because these guys have a lot in common with the devil himself. And also, every bad leader that ever was generally follows after the pattern of how these guys will lead. And so it teaches us a lot and gives us a total contrast to the way that, that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself, uh, chooses to lead. So let's dive into chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Generally, they would refer to the sea as being the nations of the world, and often when they talked about the sea, they were referring to the area across the Mediterranean from Israel, which would include Italy and where the Roman Empire would come from, but all of Western Europe, we can't say for sure what he's referring to, but this beast pops up from someone other than Israel. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So he sounds somewhat like the dragon. Remember, the dragon that we, that we read about last week, a couple weeks ago, had seven heads and ten horns, but he had seven crowns. This guy has seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. The crowns are on the horns instead of the head. He obviously bears a resemblance to the beast, to, to the dragon, to Satan, the devil, but later on they're seen as being distinct. So you'd expect somebody who follows Satan to have some resemblance, but this speaks of his authority, his power, his wisdom, his, his might in taking over and conquering. And, and these crowns that they never deserve to wear, they kind of anoint themselves. In his case, Satan himself kind of lets him rule and gives him the power that he uses. And, and there were blasphemous names on him. 
Blasphemy, the word blaspheme just means to speak against. And usually in a specialized sense, it's someone who is speaking against God, who is saying things that would, that would ridicule or that would, that would put down God, that would insult him and, and would attempt to wound him. So this guy is definitely up to no good. You can tell it by his friends. You can tell it by his blasphemy. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, fast and agile. His feet were like the feet of a bear, stable and grabbing. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion, roaring and threatening. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So this guy has a lot of power at his disposal because the dragon, Satan, gives him this power. And so he is able to ascend to power, and he is strong and impressive in so many ways. And as we will see, that gains him a great audience. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So this guy, probably someone attempted to assassinate him. Now, he's around for about the whole seven-year tribulation period, but when he starts out, he's popular and he's considered to be good. He makes a peace treaty with Israel. When we get to the middle of the tribulation, something happens, and perhaps it is spurred by someone attempting to assassinate him. So he has this wound in his head, and it looks like it'll kill him, but he manages to survive. And it seems like that will cause him, and perhaps it's a Jewish guy that tries to pick him off. And so now he's angry. And as a result, we see him really turning on the Jews who have by this time begun to turn to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But most of the world would just be amazed because they didn't think he would survive. And he makes this amazing comeback after having had this wound to his head. And so in verse 4, they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. People were like, yeah, Satan. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? This guy is invincible, they would say. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was a big talker, and he was putting down everyone else and everything else. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, for three and a half years. So he ascends to this great popularity as a result of recovering from this injury. And he's a big talker. He's a great speech maker. And so he is given the opportunity for the next three and a half years to basically be running things politically for the rest of this tribulation period. And then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. This is the time that we refer to most likely as the abomination of desolation. It's this great blasphemy where Apparently, he goes into the Jewish temple and defiles the Holy of Holies. We see it in Revelation and also in Daniel. 
Um, it's a similar thing to what Antiochus Epiphanes did at one time when he was so angry with the Jews, he went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig in there and he declared himself to be God. The ultimate slap in the face to Israel and to Israel's God. And so he apparently does something like this, which enrages the Jews and it escalates the, the tension that's happening on the earth at this time. And so it was granted to him to make war with the saints, the people who had turned to God, the, the Jews who were converted, and Gentiles as well who had become converted, and there were a lot of them, especially during the first half of the tribulation, and to overcome them, with the exception, of course, of the ones who were supernaturally sealed that we've read about earlier and we'll see again when we get in chapter 14 in our next edition. So he was making war and overcoming, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He was in charge of a one-world government. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear." So he's contrasted here as he's ruling everyone in the world from every country in the world except for the people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the people who have accepted and acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Messiah. And so he's ruling everybody else. But there's an irony here because he says whose names haven't been written in the Lamb's book of life who was sacrificed before the foundation of the world, slain from the foundation of the world. The idea is, and now we begin to see the contrast, the true Messiah who planned all along before the world was even created because God saw the future and knew what we would need. The plan was for Jesus Christ to be sacrificed. And it's having your name written in his book that causes you to understand and see the destructiveness of this evil world leader. And so we see a, a dividing point between the legitimate Messiah who came to die and this phony Messiah who came to kill. And so this division happens, and if anyone has an ear, let him hear. You'll figure out there's a difference between a righteous leader and an unrighteous leader. And then he says in verse 10, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. In other words, what goes around comes around. The guy who came to destroy is about to be destroyed. The guy who came to conquer is about to be conquered. And the saints, the people who believe in Jesus Christ, are able to be patient and realize, hey, it's looking really bad, but when it's over, the Lamb of God who gave himself is going to prevail. And everyone who opposed him and everyone who pretended to be him will be destroyed. Now we come to the second beast, and he is more of a religious leader. And what we see here in 
Revelation chapter 13, is that there is a joining together of the political world and the religious world, which is almost always a really dangerous thing. It really destroys both in some ways. But this guy, the number one fan of this first beast, the Antichrist, I saw another beast, verse 11, coming up out of the earth. He probably came from the Middle East, from Israel perhaps, um, because instead of coming from the sea, he came from the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. He was like a lamb but with these horns. And he spoke like a dragon. What he said sounded like it was coming from Satan. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So this guy's job was to make people worship this first beast. A bad leader supporting a bad leader. A mutual admiration society that they had. And so he was the one who was turning a political moron into also an object of worship. He turned it into a religion. And it says in verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So he's impressive himself. And verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and live. So he, like the dragon, like Satan himself, uses deception as his greatest method. And so he's this great magician, he's this great illusionist, and he has the capacity to con people, to lie to people, to fool people. And as a result, he takes that manipulation and he causes people to say, make an image of beast number one. Now, it's always about image, ultimately, for every false leader. So they always want things that represent them, that can make them look better than they are, that can represent them as being someone who's deeply significant. It's why evil rulers like to have pictures of themselves everywhere. Because and statues of themselves. They love that. They're suckers for that. And if you want to kiss up to a bad leader, all you need to do is start putting images of him everywhere, begin to promote his image, begin to spur other people to cheer them on, and that will lead you to being very successful too as the sidekick of the evil leader. And so this guy in the name of religion does that. He makes this image. And it says in verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So the, the image that he created actually could speak. The, the, the beast didn't even have to talk. He had his image that was talking. And if you didn't like it, And if you wouldn't worship it, you'd be destroyed. You'd be killed. Kind of like the way they they kissed up to Nebuchadnezzar by making this huge image and saying everyone has to bow down to the image 
or they're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And you remember Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down, and so they threw him in the fiery furnace. Problem is, they didn't burn. And it was really an embarrassment to the evil leader in that case. Evil leaders need to kill anybody who gets in their way. They have to remove the competition. And so that's what they try to do. It's all about the image. And verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. This collusion between the political evil leader and the religious evil leader, as they got together, they create an economic system whereby it's impossible for you to do business unless you have pledged your allegiance to this evil leader. And it was apparently by putting a mark on your hand or on your forehead. Now, they'll work this up probably as a gimmick to defeat um, identity theft and things like that. Sounds like a great idea. Hey, one world government, very efficient in response to the world going through the worst time it's ever gone through economically and everything because of all the devastation happening during the tribulation period. And so this guy comes up with the idea and it's a tribute to this evil creature, this evil leader, is all you need to do is sign up. And when you do, we will, as you worship the beast, you'll be authorized in order to economically continue to function by just having this mark. It'll be easier than a credit card. It'll be something that'll be very convenient and impossible, probably maybe a chip inserted under the skin or something. It'll be impossible for you to do business without it, but it'll be impossible for somebody to rip you off. Sounds like a great plan. Now, that's something that someday we will see. Now, you don't have to be paranoid about this. You don't have to say, oh, I don't want to get a credit card or a social security number or own a computer or have a, a smart card or, or a gasoline you know, wand that you wave and it makes it go because I don't want to take the mark of the beast. This will be really obvious that you are agreeing to worship the beast when you take this mark. You know, I know people who are afraid of the number six. Now, the number seven is the number of completion. So the number six tends to be the number of man. And, and this guy is 666. He's like the ideal man. Everybody loves him. And this mark is connected somehow to him. Now, it tells us you know, that if you have understanding, calculate the number of the beast. Seems to say that at some point, you'll be able to figure out who this guy is. There will be an ironic connection between the number 666 and the guy who is bringing this about. Now, there are people today who just try like crazy and they go, <coughs> excuse me, they say, I think I can figure it out because in the Hebrew alphabet, the letters had numeric 
values to them. And so they do a lot of calculations, and they have been able to prove that all sorts of leaders in the past were the Antichrist. They took the name of Adolf Hitler, did a calculation, 666. I remember when they did it to Henry Kissinger. They did it to Richard Nixon. They did it to George Bush. They've done it to President Obama. Pretty much you name it, you're able to reverse engineer it and come up with why their name is the 666. But I've been unimpressed by all of those efforts because they've just been wrong every time. So I don't have understanding. I think this is something that it's only going to be during that time that it all falls together and then people will have a very clear delineation. This is the guy that was prophesied about. And so I think it's as people during this time look back that it's going to make sense. I don't think it's something that we have to necessarily worry about. There are people, again, who are paranoid of the number six. And I remember one time there was a guy that worked at Calvary who was a little slow, and, and one of my vice principals was stamping the tuition coupons, and each had an account number stamped on it. And this guy, um, who will remain nameless, was in the lounge looking for food and everything, and Dan put the, set the numbers to 666 and stamped it on his hand. <laughs> and he just flipped out. He starts screaming, and he's, do you know what you just did? I, now I'm doomed forever, and I'm trying to calm him down. Hey, it's okay. That's not... The mark of the beast is not having numbers and ink stamped on your hand. Look, come over here. We'll wash it off. You're going to be okay. And he still ran to Pastor Chuck and everything, you know, <laughs> thought something horrible had happened. But, you know, I remember when I bought the first computer that Calvary Chapel had. And it was simply about efficiency. But, oh, man, I had people who thought that we had taken on the mark of the beast by having a computer. Today, you know, we don't think much of that, but... In those days, somehow it'll become obvious that by buying into this one-world economy, that the only way to survive easily will be to buy into it. Now, again, there will be people who can still live and get by because they'll return to a barter kind of society. They'll try to have ways of sustainability. They will have stocked supplies and things like that. So everyone doesn't get the mark of the beast, but most people do. And so... This is this time, and these are these two, rule, two leaders, a political leader and a religious leader, who create a one-world government and a one-world economy in order to control it. And together with the two of them plus the devil, they form this unholy trinity that will be dominating what happens on the earth. Now, it's interesting. When you think about this, that you can go throughout history and see that evil leaders almost never come up with anything new. They're all very similar. They all share a lot of traits. Now think about it with these guys. I mean, for one thing, evil leaders are, tend to be really popular. The people will follow them as these guys will be incredibly popular. How does that happen? Well, evil leaders lie. And if you want to get people to support you, one of the easiest ways to do it is to lie. It's the clear indication of a false leader, of a selfish leader, is they lie to you. Now, I can talk about evil dictators, but let's face it, 
in our own political system, we have elections that'll be coming up pretty soon. If you tell the truth, you will not be elected to dog catcher, much less president, because you have to compete with people who will lie. So they will say, I'm not gonna raise taxes. If you wanna be president, you better say, I'm not gonna raise taxes. Now they're gonna say, I'm not gonna cut any programs out. Nobody, you know, Medicare is not gonna suffer. Social Security is not gonna suffer. Oh, oh, I'll take money from people you don't like. Well, who are those people? Well, I can't say. I have a plan. And so they create this whole phony explanation as to how they're gonna fix things. But anybody who tells the truth and says, look, man, we're gonna have to quit spending money and that means you're gonna have less from the government. And also, we're gonna have to tax you more because it's the only way we're ever gonna balance things and get things going. And oh, by the way, this is gonna hurt. Who's gonna vote for somebody like that? Because lying will make you popular. And if someone tells the truth, they can't compete with somebody who's lying because a liar can make up anything. And again, this is a way to evaluate leadership is to go, who is the deceiver? As you remember from last week, the devil is called the deceiver. He is the one who lies. That's how he does what he does. He fools people. And so evil leaders will always do that. Something else Evil leaders, it's all about them, and they tend to bunch themselves with other evil leaders so that they can support each other, so that they can cheer each other on, so that they can bind together. Oh man, look at when, it's a, when there's a political season. The first thing they want to do is have other of their cronies stand up on the stage with them to go, yep, I love you. You love me? Yep, I love you. Look. We all think this. This is the way we are. And it works. It's successful. Bad leadership generally will make someone extremely popular. Good leaders, not so much. Now, as well as that, blasphemy is the easy way to promote yourself. See, if you have to actually do something, if you have to actually produce, that's not easy. It's hard to actually do something but it's really easy to talk against what everyone else is doing. That's simple. Just take pot shots at others. And so quite often, instead of actually producing, a bad leader will build their reputation based on what they're against, and they will blaspheme. They will speak against. The world is full of people who do this. We constantly evaluate everything that's out there. You know, we go to a, a restaurant and we go, these people are idiots. You know, there's, there are things that you could do, make some adjustments, make some tweaks, change the menu, and this could be a great restaurant. And they could be successful. But these idiots just won't do it. Well, have you ever tried to make a restaurant for yourself? If you haven't done it, it's really easy to criticize who's there. And you can look at McDonald's and go, oh, look at all that junk they're serving. You can sue McDonald's saying they made you fat, but can you create something yourself? Why don't you try opening a fast food place that uses hummus and, and vegetables? <laughs> and then when you're really successful, then you have a right to go, McDonald's, you could do this better. But evil rulers 
gain capital by simply tearing down what other people do. Um, and it's the easiest way to get ahead as a leader, to get people to support you. Yeah, let's get on the bandwagon here. Let's talk down against whoever is actually doing something. And so we see this going on with both of these. Image becomes a major thing. Protecting your image. Forcing people to follow you is also Rather than to let people contribute to what you're doing, hey, it's much easier just to tax everyone so that they have to follow me. And then you become a suspect if you're not cheering for the leader so you get on an enemy's list and they begin to suspect who you are. You may be a complete nut, but they have to crush you so that they continue to keep their crowd of supporters seeming to be dominant. And bad leaders do this kind of stuff whether it is in business, as big talkers, whether it's in politics, as wannabe political leaders, whether it's in religion or any other aspect of life, you can begin to see the phony leaders by the characteristics that they exhibit. And by the way, one of the major things is this guy here in this chapter, in chapter 13, notice that he was hurt He was wounded, but he got well and came back stronger, meaner, angrier than ever. Because for an evil leader, survival is the most important thing. And when they come back, they come back with a vengeance. Now, contrast this kind of leadership with the leadership of the true Messiah. And think about Jesus and what he did, and how he leads, and it stands in stark contrast to an evil leader. And Jesus is the example of what a good leader is. Now, turning your Bibles over to Philippians chapter 2, and let's just look at this one little description that Paul gave of the kind of leader that Jesus is. And we are called to have this same mind that he has. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, or he didn't hang on to his equality with God, but he made himself of no reputation, or he literally emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Jesus, the true Messiah. Jesus, the righteous ruler. Jesus, the one who serves as our example, is as opposite the ambitious, big mouth, you know, uh, aggressive, uh, one who is trying to destroy anyone who opposes him, as you could possibly be. When you, when you see this, he didn't protect himself. 
when he got wounded, he died on purpose. He gave his life for us. He didn't want people to die for him. He chose to die for people. And he didn't build his power base by hanging on to it and protecting his image. He absolutely obliterated his own image by humbling himself to leave heaven and to become a man and ultimately to die death. He didn't have his supporters dying for him. He died for those who hated him. He died for his enemies. That's the kind of leader he was. And as you know, as opposed to blaspheming and talking against people, that wasn't, he didn't build his, his own base of support by putting others down. Not at all. He just simply lived the perfect life and gave us an example of what life could be. And then ultimately, instead of saving himself from a deadly wound, which he could have done, he chose to die for the people. He chose to give of himself for us. Ultimately, that's what good leadership looks like. Good leadership doesn't trip out about your image. Good leadership doesn't put others down to put yourself up. Good leadership doesn't rule by destroying anyone who gets in your way. Good leadership simply gives of itself is willing to sacrifice for the good of people who don't appreciate them. And good leadership doesn't force anyone to follow them. Good leadership just continues to love and to give, and then ultimately to see who will follow. Ultimately, in the long run with Jesus, every tongue will confess. Everybody's going to get it. It's going to be really clear who he is. But man, in the meantime, not so popular. There are plenty of people who are more popular than he is. And there are plenty of people who are ambitious and trying to build their kingdoms based on who he is. That's what bad leadership does. And there's nowhere more than at the cross where Jesus showed us the difference. Where the Antichrist saved himself and killed others. Jesus saved others by allowing himself to be killed. We see this also over in Isaiah chapter 53. In a moment, we're going to participate in communion, which is remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. And often when we celebrate communion, we go to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah because it so clearly shows the kind of leader that Jesus is and what he did by dying for us. It's my favorite chapter of the Bible. On Wednesday nights, we're doing a series on favorite chapters, and I did mine last week on Isaiah 53. But it starts like this. And keep in mind, these two dirtbag popular leaders and who Jesus is. It starts out, it says, who's ever believed our report? And, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he would grow up before them as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or attractiveness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we would even want him. He was so unpopular. In fact, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we were embarrassed by him. We hid our faces from him. He was despised and we didn't esteem him. But surely he bore our grief and carried our sorrows, yet 
We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He goes on to say he was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And it goes on to describe the death of Jesus for us. Do you see the contrast? Do you see what real leadership looks like? Real leadership is willing to die for people who don't even appreciate them. Real leadership, as opposed to being a big talker and having people write speeches for you so that you'll look really good and hiring press agents to to promote you in every way possible to guard and protect your image, the true godly leader like Jesus just says, talk against me, I really, I don't need to defend myself. That's okay, I've come to die. I, I want to give myself. So you can do what you want to do. I don't have a problem with that. I'm going to do what I'm called to do. And where the phony leader can always beat you with lies, the true leader did the truth. He came and said, I'm the truth. People didn't like it. It didn't make him popular. But ultimately, one day, he will reign as a king demonstrating that true leadership is all about humility and sacrifice and honesty and integrity and putting others ahead of yourselves. And and that's what a real leader is, and, and that's who Jesus is. And you can contrast him with anyone else's leadership style and discover right away who's what. And I would just encourage you, you're a leader in one respect or another, which leader are you following? What are you trying to be? What am I trying to be? Am I trying to be like Jesus Christ or am I trying to be more like Antichrist? Am I trying to take shortcuts and make it happen with my cleverness, my deception, my, my just ambiguous approach, practical approach to it's all about me? Nowhere other than on the cross do we discover the nature of our leader The false leader, the Antichrist, oh, he got famous for not dying. Our Lord Jesus became infamous because he died. And yet there are some people who saw that and get it. And that's why we today are here gathered together and we're going to participate in communion because he died for us. Now, you might be here today and go, I don't know about that. The way you're describing these false leaders is pretty much what I've tried to be. And everybody I'm a fan of leads that way. Well, I just want to offer to you the opportunity to change who you're following. And today, you can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can allow him to have died for you and for him to give you a fresh start. If you've never done that, there's no greater time than right before we participate in communion to say, 
Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I'm going to give my life to you. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay anything. There's a, it's a free gift. And it's simply, as the elements are being passed out, um, just turn to him. He, he's hearing you. He knows your heart. And just say, yeah, Jesus, I want you to be my leader. I want to follow you. I want your death to be for me. And I want to live for you. And if you make that commitment in your heart, you're, you're his child. Your life just started over today. Everything's going to be different because you woke up from following phonies and you've chosen to follow the real deal. That's our, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, please do it this morning as we celebrate our leader dying first for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of the good news that you gave yourself for us. Lord, it's, it's stunning when we look at the leadership model that not only is prominent during the tribulation period, but that is so characteristic of the way we try to get ahead today. So Lord, help us to follow you. Help us to, to see all of the lies for what they are, and help us to respond to that singular truth that our Lord Jesus came and died for us so that we could live. And as we partake in communion, Lord, please help us to connect with you in a very real way as we acknowledge you as our Savior and as we partake in these elements that speak of your sacrifice on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen invite you to continue worshiping with us as the men